Things happen in my life that I didn't expect. Circumstances happen to me that, again, that I didn't choose. How many have been there? Circumstances, life, things happen, and you just didn't anticipate it. Well, that's what happened to me. And for about a year and a half, it was like a cloud over me. And I was very, very discouraged. And, um, you know, we all get discouraged. But this was a prolonged discouragement that I knew that was upon me. Um, if, you, if you looked at me on the outside, maybe you couldn't tell. Maybe some of the close people around me could. But I was very, 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 very discouraged. And it led to, to bitterness. And it affected the way I was living my life. It affected what I felt God was trying to do through me. So I want to talk to you today about the power of discouragement and, and can we possibly turn it around. I want to give you, if you look on your outline, there's, uh, there, there's four facts about discouragement. Number one, it's a universal disease. We all catch it. In fact, in front of you is a sample of people in the Bible who had to bounce back from discouragement. And I want you to notice this list, and it was a very encouragement to me because what we go through... The people in the Bible also went through because we've all had a bounce back from discouragement. You see, Moses, Moses had a bounce back from failure in ministry. He had a bounce back from lack of encouragement from people in his life. And this guy had the whole nation grumbling about him. Anybody can relate to that? Anybody have teenagers? John Mark had a bounce back from being rejected by a Christian leader. It's painful. And it hurts. Nehemiah, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, had a bounce back from discouragement with circumstances. Peter had a bounce back from something that's probably my main source of discouragement, mainly myself. Why did I say this? Why did I do that? Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? Jesus had a bounce back from discouragement from, with people. Isn't it true that my main source of discouragement either has to do with myself or other people? How many can relate to that? Elijah, his main source of discouragement was criticism from other people. Don't you love Elijah? He comes up and, and he is going to, he has 400 prophets of Baal. He wipes them all out. And he, and he gets criticized for one woman. And it just wipes him out. He runs and hides in a cave. His response to criticism totally took him out of the game and paralyzed him. How many have been there? And Lazarus, he had to bounce back from being dead. So everybody in the Bible has to bounce back from something. So discouragement is a universal disease. We all catch it. It's a repeating disease. You can catch it more than one time. Raise your hand if you've been discouraged more than once these past 45 days. Amen. Almost unanimous. It's a contagious disease. You can catch it from other people. Is there anybody that you know in your life by just spending time with them you end up being discouraged? Okay, they're in-laws or outlaws or, or whatever you want to call them. But there are people in our lives, right, that... And by just spending time with them, you get discouraged. 
I know somebody at my former job where I used to work at South San Francisco High School. I had this one person who happened to be one of my, one of my bosses. Um, I tried to avoid her like the plague because every time I would be in her presence, I felt pretty bad about myself or I was doing something wrong or there was just something. But there's just people in our lives that we try to avoid. And, and it makes it very, very difficult to be around. So it's a contagious disease. And fourthly, uh, it's a deadly disease. Someone said that discouragement is the antiseptic that the devil uses on a person just before he goes on to carve out their heart. It seems to me that discouragement always brings destruction. Most marriages that I have seen destroyed, it began with somebody being discouraged. No one ever says, I'm in love with my wife. We're we're having a great marriage. I want to get divorced. It just doesn't happen that way, does it? It happens in ministry. Most ministries that go downhill, the fire was lit and caused by discouragement. It's why kids drop out of school. No one drops out of school because they're encouraged. They drop out of school because they're discouraged. And why do people walk away from God? No one walks away from God without first being discouraged. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 is so important. It says, these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. It says these three things are important. Faith. We've got faith down, don't we? We talk about faith all the time. Churches have statements of faith. We've got faith down. We've got love down. We sing songs about it. We practice in small groups. Everybody talks about love. Everybody talks about faith, but no one talks about hope. You ever been to the Mount Hermon bookstore? Walk in sometime. And you see... The shelves are filled with how to have a strong faith, how to love. There's nothing about hope. We've got a lot of faithful Christians who are discouraged. And it's so easy to become discouraged because so many people are downers. A pastor was sent this story. Listen, to it goes like this. This lady says, I took my child to a restaurant this past week. And my six-year-old son asked if he could say grace. My six-year-old son never does anything quietly. And as we bowed, we, he prayed this prayer. God is great. And God is good. I want to thank Him for our food. And I want to thank Him even more if Mom buys me ice cream for dessert. And you know, and liberty and justice for all. Amen. And after, with the laughter with the customers around, this lady says, I, I heard a nearby remark. That's the problem with this country. Kids don't even know how to pray today asking God for ice cream. Why, I never. Well, hearing this, my son burst into tears and asked, did I do something wrong? Is God mad at me? I held him and assured him that he did a fantastic job and that God was not mad with him. He said, an elderly man approached the table and winked at my son and said, I happen to know God, and I happen to know that God thought that was a really terrific prayer. The little boy said, really? He says, cross my heart. And he nodded towards that woman whose remarks started the whole thing and says, too bad she doesn't ask for ice cream because ice cream is good for the soul. 
Well, naturally, at the end of the meal, uh, I bought my son the biggest bowl of ice cream that they could bring him. Without a word, it was brought to him. His eyes got big and he picked it up and he walked over to the place of the lady who remarked, started the whole thing and says, here, lady, ice cream is good for the soul. My soul is good already. How many know our condition of our soul is important? I want to give you this morning, I want to give you the setting for this verse that we are going to use this morning. And so the settings for one of the most discouraged person in the Bible, it's a guy named Nehemiah. And so um, you see the picture, but if you turn, if you have your Bible or, or um, handheld device, you turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter one. But I want to give you a brief uh, Old Testament survey, but if I don't give you this uh, survey, it, this uh, chapter and these verses really don't make a whole lot of sense. So here goes. So from about 931 B.C. for about 150 years, God's people were part of what scholars called the United Kingdom, where all 12 tribes are together. But things didn't last, and there was taxation, and it was pretty intense, and the whole thing pretty much blew up. And 10 of the tribes went north, and they formed the nation of Israel with the capital of Samaria. And two of the tribes went south. And they formed the nation of Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. Now the Assyrians actually wiped out that first group. And the book of Nazareth came down all the way to Jerusalem about 606 B.C. And he knocked down the wall. He took the people captive. He hauled them all the way back to Babylon. And they actually stayed there for 70 years. And it was there you read of the songs and psalms and their hearts were broken. And they were sad. It was basically a disaster. But after 70 years in fulfillment by the prophet of the prophet Jeremiah, the Babylonians, Babylonians pretty much said, Thanks for coming. It's been great. You all can go home now. And that's exactly what they did. And they actually went in three waves. The first wave was led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Anybody name their child Zerubbabel? The great name. And Zerubbabel takes the first way back. And they started to live life. And for about 60 years, they tried. And they failed to build, rebuild the wall of protection in Jerusalem. It was a disaster. He had 60 straight years of failure. And then the second wave came, led by a guy named Ezra. And they failed to, fill, to, to rebuild the wall. So get this, 92 years later, the wall was still not built. That's 92 years of failure, 92 years of frustration. It's like starting a church, and after 92 years, you still don't have a building. So here it was, 92 years of failure, frustration, and fatigue. And that's where we come to chapter 1 of Nehemiah. You'll read in the first couple of verses of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's brothers go to Jerusalem and they come back. And they ask the question, Nehemiah asked the question of them, well, how's it going in Jerusalem? And they said, eh, not real good. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates were burned by fire. And the people are living in disgrace. 
Now look at chapter 1 of Nehemiah at his response. The guy is devastated. He's discouraged. Look at verse 4. It says, when I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. This is a picture of a despondent, discouraged person. And for some days I mourned. This guy was a mess. Now, this person was really a strong leader. We all know Nehemiah. He was a strong leader. What you would expect to read when you hear these words, what you expect to read was, when I heard these things, I sprung up into action. But nobody springs into action when they're discouraged. Isn't that the truth? But the thing about Nehemiah is that he doesn't just stop there. It says, I wept for some days and I mourned. And I fasted. And I prayed to the God of heaven. And the rest of Nehemiah 1 is the prayer. And because he prays, God lights a fire that does not go out. Then in chapter 2, he rallies and ignites a discouraged people, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, he says to the people, let's start rebuilding. And they did. And they started rebuilding the work of rebuilding the wall. And how many know that anytime God starts a work, Satan starts to work also? Once you start moving forward, there is always opposition. Look what it says in verse 19. It said, Samballot the Horonite. And Tobiah the Amorite. So you got the Horonite and the Amorite. And these guys are uptight. And they said, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now comes the most encour- one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. And maybe you're here today and you said, my hope level needs to go up. My confidence needs to go up. Maybe you're here today and you know you need to get your fire back. You need to get your hope back up. And Nehemiah does this for a nation with these words. The God of heaven will give us success. And we, His servants, will arise and build. The God of heaven will give us success. And we, His servants, will arise and build. You know, some of us are here today and we're trying to build something great. Something great for our future. Something great for our family. Something great for our kids. Something great for our business. And Nehemiah walks in here and he says, here's the prescription. The God of heaven will give us success. And we, His servants, will arise and build. Every time I read these verses, or this verse. It reminds me back of another discouraging time in my life in 2007. And we had just moved from South San Francisco, where I worked for 14 years. South San Francisco High School was where I went to school. It's where I felt God opened up a door for me to go back to the high school that I had a burden for when I was in high school that helped me to reach that high school for the year, the, the, the senior year, we had this big thing where uh, we got a small Bible study together and all of a sudden our goal was to reach our senior class. 
And I just had such a burden for that high school. And, and I had the opportunity to go back in 1992, and I did. And for 14 years, I was doing everything that I wanted to do. I was a PE teacher. I was the athletic director. And the, and, and the athletic department was thriving. I was having, I was the basketball, I was a varsity basketball coach. We had just won our fourth championship in 2006. And I felt God was leading me to, in 2007 to, to leave that. And I had this um, opportunity. They wanted me to build up a uh, basketball program at a small school in Sunnyvale. And I said, I can do that. I can do that. And, and so we got up and we left. And it made no sense to anybody around us. Uh, it really didn't. And when I told people I was leaving, they, you know, people couldn't understand. You know, usually people move up. They don't uh, move like I did. And, and, and I moved. And, and so we made the move and everything was great and everything was, was fine, uh, well, for, for a little bit. And all of a sudden it went south rather quick. And I remember that uh, my kids, you know, made the big move. I had a, a, a child in seventh grade and a, a child in eleventh grade. And they weren't necessarily really happy about the move. And I had one child in college. And how am I going to pay for this? That's a $15,000 pay cut that we took. And, and I had one child that was pretty much holding me hostage, didn't like uh, where he was at and didn't like any friends. And you all know as parents how that can affect you. And it affected me in a great, great way. And the thing that I counted on so much also was part of my, you know, you, you had success on the basketball court. Well, that wasn't happening either. So all around me, it was failure written all over me. And I felt trapped. And I remember that I would go down in my living room in the mornings and had this little red chair that's now in my office, but it's a little red chair. I just go sit. And when I say I cried out to God, I cried out to God. Because it's like, what am I doing? This is what I get for, you know, doing your will, O oh God. And I remember this was one of the verses. It just kept coming and I kept praying. The God of heaven will give me success. And I, your servant, will arise and build. And this four-part verse gives us four things. Four characteristics to live by. Four characteristics of healthy people. And if you live by these things, you will have success. And to the degree that you follow these things, you will have hope. How many want that this morning? I sure do. First of all, it says the God of heaven. That is being God-centered. He starts with God. And he says, will give us success. That is faith-focused. It says, we His servants, it's having a servant's heart, will arise and build. That is being future-oriented. So here in Nehemiah, he is basically saying, here is God's prescription for building new things during tough times. Here is God's prescription no matter what your background is like. Your future can be different if you follow these four things. God-centered, faith-focused, servant-hearted future-oriented. Can you imagine 
not doing without any of these things? Let's look at number one. First of all, God-centered. The God of heaven. You see, you can be problem-centered and you'll be discouraged. You can be look-centered and that's not going to last. Just look at me. <laughs> you can be money-centered. And about 12 years ago, you know, that was a pretty good strategy. Remember we had all the dot-coms? Everything was going really, really good. And all of a sudden it dried up and our 401Ks became like 401Kmarts. And many of us became discouraged. But once these people got their eyes off themselves and back onto God, everything changed. How many of you heard or how many of you like to go to Disneyland? I love to go to Disneyland. Well, Diane Disney wrote a biography of her father, Walt. This was pretty interesting. She said this. She says, you know, Walt, he, he was such an amazing guy. And, and when she was raised by Walt, he tried to be like any normal dad. He would pick her up from school. He would do, his home, do her homework with her. She said he was absolutely just a, just a wonderful God guy to the point that I didn't even know who he was uh, until my first day of kindergarten. <laughs> she says, my first day of kindergarten, I walked into class and we we're all sitting around and, and everybody was introducing themselves. And when they came to me, I said, hi, I'm Diane Disney. And he said, the whole class exploded. Diane Disney, oh, Diane Disney. She says, oh, I almost started crying. I, I was so shaken up. And then the teacher said, honey, <laughs> what was your name? And she says, Diane Disney. Oh, Diane Disney, the whole place exploded. She says, I started crying and the teacher tried to quiet everybody down. She said she quieted the whole class. She says, honey, what is your father's name? She says, Walter. Walter Disney. Oh, my Lord, Walter Disney. And she says, I, and she says, honey, you're, you're, they're excited because your father is Walt Disney. You know, Disneyland, you know, Mickey Mouse, that Disney. She says, I didn't have any idea. And she says, I walked home that day and I walked right into my living room. My dad was sitting there in his overstuffed chair reading his newspaper and I tore that newspaper out of his hands and I put my hands on my, li uh, on my hips. And he says, you never told me you were Walt Disney. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she says she walked around for about a month and a days stunned by the reality of who her father was. And shouldn't we be like that? We should be walking around stunned by who our Father is, not discouraged by the circumstances around us. You see, these people spent 92 years being discouraged by their past circumstances, their past failures. And one guy whose eyes were on God, who points them back to God, and being God-centered, all of a sudden... Everything is different. So the first thing that they were, they were God-centered. And second, they were faith-focused. They were looking ahead. And third, they were servant-hearted. You know, servant-hearted people really are the happiest people on the planet. I mean, just think about like this church. Think about the people who make this church great. You know, it's the people behind the scenes. They're probably the easiest people to get around, aren't they? You know why? Because they have no agenda. We have a, a person that we work with, Jill and I. His name is Steve, and he's one of the maintenance people. 
And he's just one of those wonderful people to be around. He's got that servant's heart. And his whole motive, every time he gets to school, he gets up in the morning, is how can I serve God today? And we all know that self-centered people are never happy people. You know what? I can prove it. Have you ever met a happy, self-centered person? No, because they don't exist. And Nehemiah comes barreling into this situation. And he says, the God of heaven will give us success. So let's get back to serving. We, His servants. And fourthly, will arise and build. He is future-oriented. You see, we can be God-centered. We can be faith-focused. We can be servant-hearted. But many people stop there. They don't want anything more, and they don't want anything new. How many Christian ministries today only focus is to bring back the past? And I believe when you do that, people, we get stuck in the past. And why is this important? Because for 92 years, these people were stuck in the past. 92 years of failure. And one guy arrives and says, we're going to arise and build. Let's move forward. And they did. Discouraged people always have this characteristic. They're always looking back. They are focused on what they did yesterday. But encouraged people are people who look forward. And it's so true. Encouraged people are always looking forward. And it took one guy who said, maybe it's time to look forward. We can do this. Let's arise and build. You see, people, it only takes one person. People, the second you become a person of hope, a person that becomes not problem-focused, but faith-focused. A person who is not, it's all about me, but is servant-hearted. A person who stops looking back, but looks forward. You will be a person of hope who ignites the people around you. Look what it says in Nehemiah 6.16. So the wall was completed in 52 days, 52 days, can you believe this? Something that had not happened in 92 years happened in 52 days because Nehemiah said, it's with the help of our God. Isn't that great? I heard the story of an individual who said his first Little League baseball game was one of the most emotional days of his life. He said he was eight years old and he weighed like 13 pounds and his uniform hung off him and he said, mm, it got worse. He says, this league had eight, nine, ten-year-olds playing and, and I was the smallest person in the league. And he said it got worse. He says, we were playing in a small field in Iowa and people came from all over to watch my first little league game. Sixty relatives came to my first little league game and it got worse. He said, what position do you think I played? 
course, right field. Because in the recorded history of baseball, a ball has never been hit to right field. And they put you in right field when you're lame. And when you're eight-year-old, you know why you're in right field, because you're lame. And he said, it got worse. He said, I batted three times. I struck out three times. Never even touched the ball. He said, it got worse. There was a seventh inning and the bases were loaded and there were two outs and I was up. And we're one, one, we're one run behind. And I stood there and I looked at my coach and said, mm, it's a good time for a sub. And he looked at me and said, get up there, kid. You can do it. He said, take those swings. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And I looked up. There were 200 people hanging over the fence screaming. And all my relatives were looking and, uh, across that fence screaming. And I looked at that picture and I realized that I had no shot to get a hit. And this guy was six foot eight and he had a beard. At least that's what it looked like when I was eight years old. (laughs) And the pitcher wound up and he he fired that first pitch. Strike one. I turned around and I started crying. I never even saw the ball. And the pitcher wound up and he looked in and he threw that ball. Strike two. I didn't even see it again. And I stepped out of the batter's box and I knew I was in trouble. I was going to strike out and we were going to lose the game. And just before I stepped into the box, I realized there were 200 people standing up on one side, screaming for me to strike out. And there were another 200 people and every relative that I knew screaming and rattling on the fence for me to get a hit to win the game. You ever been in something like that? (laughs) I said, man, i got to get a hit. Uh, My life's going to be over if I don't. So you know what I did? I started swinging during the wind-up. And I saw the pitch and I stepped into it. And I swung as hard as I can. And I missed it. The umpire said, strike three. You're out. The game is over. Then I heard two things that I will never forget. First, I heard this huge cheer from one side. And secondly, I heard the audible groan from 200 people. And everybody that I knew, and I knew my, that my relatives downed. I had failed. I had struck out. We lost the game. And it was my fault. And I dropped about at home and I began the longest walk of my life. Back to the dugout. And I walked back to the dugout, and you know how sensitive eight, nine, and ten-year-olds can be. Nice job, geek. <laughs> Thanks for losing the game for us. And I walked by, and I sat down on the bench, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. For 20 minutes, I cried. It was the last game of the day, and I could still hear the gravel underneath the tires as the cars left. Then it got really quiet with me sobbing. Maybe about ten minutes after, I heard a noise from the pitcher's mound. Hey, son, get back up. The game is not over. 
He said, and I pulled my jacket off and my hat off my face, and I looked up, and everything was fuzzy. And I looked in the center of the mound was my dad. He had a bit, he had a mitt, and he was throwing the ball to himself, saying, "Hey, son, get back up. The game is not over." Then I looked, and every relative I had was out there on the field. No one was left. There were kids running in diapers around the field, and Aunt Emma was in left field, and my blind Uncle Harold was in right field, and, and he was running into the fence, and they were all saying, Get back up! The game is not over! So sheepishly, I walked to home plate, and the bat was there, right where I left it. And I, my dad, he, he was just awesome. He said, The game's not over. And he would pitch the ball and I would swing and miss. And again he would say, the game's not over. And he would pitch it again and say the same thing. He said, that's okay. The game's not over. And all the relatives were cheering. And about the 15th time, he threw the pitch right down the middle. Whack! I hit it down the left field drive. I hit it down the left field line. I was so excited. I had hit it. And my dad started yelling, run! And I said, where's first base? I've never been there. So I run down first base, and I see the left fielder throw the ball to, 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 to the guy in center field. And so I ran to second base. And, and then the, second, and the center fielder threw the ball to right field, and, and I knew they were screwing up on purpose. And I knew it was a conspiracy of grace. But I didn't care. I just knew that they threw it to a blind guy and I knew that I was gonna, I was gonna score. And so I, I rounded third and I ran into home and I dove across home plate and I got up laughing and I dusted myself off because I was all dirty. And about four feet away from me on one knee, so we're at the same height, was my dad. And tears were streaming down his face. And he just held out his arms and he says, You're safe at home, son. You're safe at home. And I threw myself into his arms and he picked me up and he looked at me and he says, I told you. I told you. The game is not over. It's turned out to be the, one of the best days of my life. Because as the sun was setting in that little baseball field in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, all 60 of my relatives carried me off the field. And people here this morning, I believe this. No matter what your last year has been like, no matter how discouraging it has been, no matter how many times you've struck out, and no matter how many times You've been down. Jesus would say to you today, get up. Dust off your clothes. The game is not over. The game is not over. The game is not over. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank You for giving us hope. 
Lord, I just want to pray right now for the people here today. Many of us might feel discouraged in their life, discouragement, things and circumstances, maybe that they didn't even choose. Lord, I just want to pray that we would look to You. That God, that You would enter into these situations. Lord, give us hope. Hope through Your Word. We pray. Lord, we just thank You for this church. And I just pray Your continued blessing on this. And though they might come through a difficult time also, we just pray, God, that You would help this church to continue to move forward to do the work that You've called them to do. And I thank You for that. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. We have another song we sing. Amen. You can stand and let's sing this song as we believe that our hope is on Jesus Christ.